Thanks for letting me be here. I love uh, talking to young folks. When I walked in the room, the average age in here just went up by about 25 years, so sorry about that. Um, You all have Bibles with you. We're going to go to a lot of different passages, but we're going to start in Isaiah 40. So why don't you turn to Isaiah 40, and then I'm going to pray for a moment while you're finding that text. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open the glorious Word of God that tells us all that we need to know about you and about each other. I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to speak to these here who are seeking after you and many know you savingly and some perhaps are still seeking. And so, Lord, we ask that your word tonight would do what you promised in Isaiah 55, that it would not come back empty, that it would fulfill the purpose for which you have set it out. I pray, Lord, for attentive ears and open hearts this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have a rule. Uh, it's my own personal rule about speaking to young folks um, in your age bracket. Uh, and that is that I won't ever talk down to you. I'm going to speak to you as adults. I, I don't believe in trying to treat you like you're 13, 14, 15. Uh, in, in Bible times, you're all pretty much adults. So uh, God expects you to know these things. And on top of that, at your age, your brains are sharper than they'll ever be. So I know you can you can handle all this. So I won't speak down to you, and I'm not going to water anything down. What I want to talk to you tonight about is something that the sooner you learn this, the better your life will be, the better your Christian life will be, and that is about Christian joy. I want to talk specifically about what it means to be joyful always. And I'm going to give you a definition. Here's a little short definition about Christian joy, and I'll I'll repeat it for you if you want to write it down. Christian joy is the certain knowledge that God is sovereign. The certain knowledge that God is sovereign, which results in peace and contentment. The certain knowledge that God is sovereign, which results in peace and contentment. That sounds pretty easy, but to be honest with you, the topic of Christian joy is massive. It's, it's huge. There are so many different angles that we could look at this from. And so I asked myself a question, and that is, what is one specific area of the Christian life that can give joy if you properly understand that. In other words, is there a key that unlocks what it means to be joyful as a Christian? And I found the answer to that question in one of my favorite texts in Scripture, and that is the last five verses of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, 27 through 31. And what this text teaches us is that Christian joy belongs to those, and here's the key, who learn how to wait on the Lord. Learn how to wait. This passage was given first, and I always like to set the context, to the exiled Jews in Babylon. It was written prophetically about 150 years before they were exiled, but it was for their comfort. And this is kind of the highlight, the climactic portion of Isaiah 40. It kind of builds up to this. Isaiah 1 through 39 is doom and gloom and judgment, and all of a sudden you get these new themes in Isaiah 40 of grace and mercy and hope and forgiveness and restoration, and most importantly, a theme of Messiah. And so to the exiles in Babylon, God says to wait in his strength. And I'm going to tell you tonight, that's the key. That's the central feature to joy in the Lord is learning how to wait. All of you are waiting for something. 
every one of you. And at your stage in life, you're pretty much waiting for everything, right? Don't tell me you haven't said, I can hardly wait to grow up, right? I said that a thousand times uh, just when I was 12. I said it a thousand times when I was 13. I said it a thousand times when I was 14. Then when I was about 19, I said, oh, snap, I'd like to be a kid again because there's a lot less responsibility and it's a lot more fun. But you're waiting for everything. Like, like you pretty much have your whole life ahead of you. And so you can either learn to wait well now or you can learn later. Right now you're waiting in terms of months, maybe years. Later in your life, you'll be waiting for things for decades. And so learning now is going to help you. And frankly, it'll really define your character. It'll define the effectiveness of your Christian life. On the negative side... There are professing believers, and as a pastor, I've dealt with these many, many times, who refuse to wait. They're stubborn. They won't wait. When you refuse to wait, it always leads to sin. It always leads to you jumping ahead of the Lord. It leads to impatience. It leads to being difficult with others. It leads to gossip. It leads to slander. I think I could take every sin listed in Scripture and trace it back to a refusal to wait on the Lord. A refusal to be patient. Just about every counseling situation I've ever encountered includes some urgency to wait on something. And when I say urgency to wait, I know that sounds like a contradiction, but people create a a life of great uh, inconsistency and a life of great lack in peace because they won't wait. They won't simply be peaceful and wait on the Lord. For you at your age, you're waiting for almost everything. And I understand that. Isaiah continues his comfort to these future Isaiah, these future uh, exiles in Babylon. They've lost all hope. Most of the people who are reading this as exiles, they're probably the second or the third generation there. Like there's no hope of going home for them. So let me read the text to you and then I'm going to divide it up into some manageable pieces here. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and the justice due me passes by my God? Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weary, and to him who lacks vigor, he increases might. Though youths grow weary and tired and choice young men stumble badly, yet those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. This is vivid imagery. This is is your word pictures that you could almost paint. That your joy in the Lord comes when... He gives you the will, the strength, the spiritual stamina, the power to wait on Him. And I'm going to borrow the imagery here. What kind of power does the Lord give to those who wait? He gives the power to soar, the power to run, and the power to walk. And that's how we're going to divide this up. The power to soar, to run, and to walk. What does it mean to have the power to soar? It means to, just what it sounds like, to fly above circumstances. To fly above circumstances that cause pain, to ascend higher than the agony of waiting. And we talk about soaring high and running and walking. We're, we're dealing with metaphors, we're dealing with word pictures. But don't forget the original readers. The original message to the Jew who was waiting for release in Babylon was, you will have the power to go home. 
And I want you to understand where their mindset was, where they really were. Let's go to Psalm 137. I'll have you turn there because we're going to read a, a lengthy section of it. This tells you where they were, what they were feeling. Listen to the cry of the exile. Psalm 137, verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and also wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows, in the midst of it, we hung our lyres. Those are musical instruments. For there our captors asked us about the words of a song, and our tormentors asked joyfully, saying, Sing for us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing a song of Yahweh in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof, cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy... They did have hope, but there's a despair. There's a, there's a distance. They're far away. And in fact, in verses 7 through 9, the, the Israelites are praying for Babylon to be judged, for Babylon to be devastated because of what they've done to Israel. And so the original message to the Jew wasn't just a metaphor. It wasn't just, you need to walk with the Lord. It was, you need power to actually walk home. How far a walk was it? I want you to picture going to San Diego. That's a little ways south. And then put on your walking shoes and walk to Portland, Oregon. Okay, if you don't like geography, that's straight north, about 900 miles. That's a significant walk. That's a significant drive, to be honest with you. To put it in perspective, the walk uh, that Israel took from Egypt just to Canaan was just about 300 miles. It was one-third the distance. But before they could ever make that trip... God had to address their frame of mind, the the grief that's expressed in Psalm 137. Exiled Israel, they're in no state to believe the Lord for anything. They're in no state to believe that they can make it home. What they're suffering from is a low view of God. It kept them from developing spiritually. So go back to Isaiah 40. And how does he begin to deal with this low view of God, deal with this hopelessness? Verses 27 and 28 kind of provides a a gentle correction, a gentle rebuke. Verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and the justice due me passes by my God? He's calling them out on their unbelief, their, their skepticism. God's basically saying, how could you say these things when you know perfectly well who God is and what he's done? And in fact, uh, just to do a little grammar here, three out of four of the main verbs in verse 27 are what are called imperfect verbs. There's a sense of continuousness. In other words, why do you keep on saying, why do you keep on asserting, why do you keep on saying justice is going by me, that they're griping over and over again? What they're feeling is that Israel, put it this way, has taken her case to God. And in the court, God says, I'm throwing this case out. I'm not going to consider it. That's how they're feeling. Like there's no hope whatsoever. Now, when God decides not to hear your case, there is no Supreme Court. There is no going above that. And so that's other hopelessness. There's no higher court to go to. To Israel, God has become so distant, so far away that in their minds he's stopped caring. But that's not true. 
It's not that God was too great to care. It's that God is too great to fail them. And so God reminds them of what they've been previously taught. And and he goes right back to the beginning, the very basic understanding of who God is. Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? In fact, have you not heard can be uh, translated, have you not read? Uh, How would we say it? Do you have a Bible? Have you not read this? And he goes right back to the basics. The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. He takes them back, as it were, to the Bible to relearn what they already knew. God even gives them a clue to remember that they've heard from Scripture. He takes them all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 1. He reminds them that the Lord is the God of eternity, that when Moses wrote, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that wasn't God's beginning. God never had a beginning. And he's reminding them of that, that he's eternal, he's everlasting, he's perpetual, he's timeless, he's infinite. And he reminds them that he's the creator of the ends of the earth. That's a phrase that a Jew would take as all the places I've never been, which at at your age is pretty much everywhere, right? You haven't gotten to travel like, like you want to yet. But God's making a logical point. Here's his point. He's saying, look, if I wasn't tired after creating the earth and the moon and the stars and the universe, I probably can deal with your exile. I'm not worn out. He's not going to become weary. He's not tired. And if God can figure out how to make light, how to make trees, how to make dirt, how to make air, how to make mankind... How can you say God's not rescuing you from captivity, that he's not able to do that? He reminds them his understanding is unsearchable. This is two Hebrew words put together that means unable to be explored, that nobody can go to the mind of God except God himself. God's wisdom is so high that if you take everything you know about God, And let's say, we'll use Isaac as an example here. You know much about God. He writes everything down that he knows, and then he passes it down every row, and everybody writes everything down that you know about God. God is so infinite and he's so eternal that you haven't made progress. You haven't inched one inch forward in your understanding of God because he's eternal. Psalm 147.5 says it this way, His understanding is beyond measure. And so Israel's suffering from despondency, from weakness. But the chapter ends with this glorious promise. Those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power. Hope in Scripture has a dimension of certainty. To wait on the Lord isn't just to look at a clock. It's not just to look at a calendar. It's to have an expectation of something good coming down the line. And I'll give you a little secret right now. Don't worry about whether those good things are in this life or in the life to come. That makes life a lot easier. Some will be in this life. Most will be in the life to come. And so God promised to give them new power. And by the way, this is another imperfect verb, which means he's saying, I'll give you new power over and over and over again. How many days do you have to trust the Lord for? According to scripture, one, just today, right? And so far, every one of you have made it to the end of the day. Right? There's only one day in your life that you won't make it to the end of. The last one. Every other one you make through. So it says, he keeps gaining new power. He keeps giving you new power. And then, the, the text just 
kind of elevates to this exquisite and elegant picture of what he'll do for those who wait on him. They will mount up with wings like eagles. There's about 60 different species of eagles, but the Israelite would think of one, and that is the white-tailed eagle with a seven-foot wingspan, a huge bird. They can fly 15,000 feet high. They glide for hours, and you know what they love? They love storms because they fly above a storm, and the storm is what actually keeps them afloat. Eagles are are huge pictures in Scripture. In, In the Bible, the symbol of the eagle speaks of speed, it speaks of ferocity, it speaks of great pride, great power. But the most relevant and the most important picture of an eagle speaks of redemption, speaks of rescue, speaks of escape. This is a very familiar picture to the Jew. Exodus 19, 4-6 says, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So when the Jew is reading, you will mount up with wings like eagles, they're thinking, oh, just like when we escaped from Egypt so many years earlier. And so it is a, a picture of escape. It's a picture of redemption. But God also tells them they'll mount up, they'll ascend, they'll lead out. That's what the word means. It's a metaphor of flying. What is flying a picture of? I know uh, uh, for us, we think of airplanes, but they didn't have those, so they think only of birds. But flying in the Bible speaks of rest. It speaks of rescue. David says it this way. In Psalm 55, he says, My heart is in anguish. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. To tell them that they're going to mount up with wings like eagles, that what he's doing is he's counteracting their low view of God. He's assuring them of escape and, and redemption and rest and relief. So what does it mean to have the power to soar while you're waiting? To experience Christian joy while you're waiting expectantly on the Lord? Well, we've already seen the most primary means to the power to soar is to be reminded of the never-ending strength of the Lord. But the point is, is that the bigger and the greater and the more fabulous that God is in your mind the less power the time of waiting has over you. And I'll I'll tell you, you can actually reach a point of total victory. Did you know that? You can reach a point of breaking through to where you don't mind how long you're waiting for something. The Apostle Paul enjoyed this victory. He said in Philippians 4, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned, past tense, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What has he learned? He's learned how to wait. He learned it. Well, not only is God willing to give you the power to soar, we come down a little bit. He's willing to give you the power to run as you wait for the Lord. The power to run. And, and I want to delve into my childhood just for a minute uh, to kind of illustrate what we're talking about here. In seventh grade, I, I had to go to a public school. There were no other options in the, those days uh, back in the 1700s when I went to school. 
And in seventh grade, we had to do physical education, not my favorite. And the uncreative teacher I had, I still remember for eight weeks straight, all we did was run around the track for an hour. And I didn't learn anything except that when the Great Tribulation comes, I hope that track gets incinerated because I, <laughs> I hated it. But there was one day that was highly entertaining because one poor girl was running and running, and I'll never forget this as long as I live, she just ran out of steam, and apparently uh, when that happens to a certain degree, all of her muscles just shut down, and I felt bad for her. I did laugh at the time, I have to admit, but she just was running and just, and just did this like into the dirt in the track and, and just kind of sat there and, and we just kind of ran by her because in seventh grade you don't care about anybody but yourself. <laughs> that's, what, uh, that's what runners call hitting the wall. Her muscles just locked up. Now, I, I don't know what happened. I know it was hilarious, but I felt bad later. I want to show you what it means spiritually to hit the wall. Turn to Job chapter 3. What does it mean to spiritually just lock up and just crash and burn? If you have not experienced this in your life, I'm glad, but you might. This is what happens to us spiritually, this locking up and just muscle being, being shut down, utter despair, hopelessness. One of the greatest descriptions of hitting the wall spiritually is found in Job 3. Job 3, verse 1. After Job opened his mouth... Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And listen to this. Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night which said a man is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God seek it from above, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and shadow of death redeem it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let thick darkness take it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those who curse it curse the day. And he goes on and on, basically, in Every way he can think of saying, the day that I was born is the worst day in the history of the world. Verse 11, why did I not die from the womb, come forth from the womb and breathe my last? The rest of the chapter is Job's lament about the great suffering that he's undergoing, the death of his children, the loss of his possessions, the loss of his health. Now, we have the benefit of having the book of Job, right? And so, if we, I won't take the time to do it, but if, if we were to turn to Job 42 and just tell Job, look ahead, it's this list of all the blessings that God returns to him. Now, keep that in your brain, turn back to Isaiah 40. What is the power to run? The power to run is to see Job 42 in your life before Job 42 happens. Before all the good ways that God will bring about his resolutions happen. It's to put on the eyes of faith and continue forward believing that God hasn't finished the script of your life yet. That God will continually provide the power for each day. That's his promise in Isaiah 40, verse 29. Verse 29, he gives power to the weary. And to him who lacks vigor, he increases might. And you might say, well, this will never happen to me. I'm, I'm walking closely with the Lord. Listen, in, in recent days, I was speaking to a, a, a pastor 
who is a fabulous preacher, a wonderful leader, a, a godly, godly man. But he's had some circumstances in his life, and he called me, and we, we, we spoke for several hours. And at the end of this time, he, he said, I, I, I just have to tell you this. I don't want to live anymore. I, and he's, he said, I'm being as objective as I can, but honestly, I don't want to wake up in the morning. And I know that's selfish. I know that's wrong. That's just where my heart is. I don't want to live. Because of some things that had happened to him physically and emotionally and, and relationally. And he was very, very transparent about that. He was the last guy on earth I'd ever thought I'd hear those words from. And so Isaiah 40:29 tells you, if you reach that point... He gives power to the weary. In fact, my friend, that, that's what he said. He said, I'm just so weary. I just can't do another day. What is the power to run? It's the power to look to the end of the chapter, last chapter of your life before you get there. What does it mean to be weary? It means to fail under the pressure of life. It means to just get to the point where you don't want to do anything. To say, I don't want to do one more day. I've gotten to speak to people who are horribly physically disabled at times. And I had one lady say, I, I wake up in the mornings and sometimes I just tell the Lord, I don't want to be this way today. Today I'd like to be able to walk. Today I'd like to be able to be normal. But they don't have a choice. That's what it is to be weary. But what does God promise here? He says that if you don't have any strength, if you don't have any vitality, He will increase might. This is an interesting word. It means bone. He'll increase your stability, your durability. He'll give you stronger bones. Now, if you read the New Testament at all, you might be thinking of someone else who runs in power. At the end of his life, the Apostle Paul told Timothy that he had stayed true to Christ. He had never strayed from the Lord. He was faithful. He trusted the Lord. And how did he express it? 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I've finished the race. He says that one other time. He uses that same word picture. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now, I'm going to get into a little theology here. This is important, though. What is the race that Paul is speaking of? It's not just the race of his life. In the context of 1 Corinthians 9, it's the race of a life that is aimed at pleasing Christ. That that's a good race. It's not just making it to the end. Guess what? Every human being makes it to the end of his life, right? He's talking about making it to the end faithfully with the aim of serving the Lord. Now running the race takes a whole new dimension because it's not just about, oh, my feelings, I need to feel good, I need to get through this. No, running the race goes now beyond just receiving strength for myself, but asking the Lord for strength so that I can be useful for Him. 1 Peter 4 talks about serving the Lord with the strength that God provides. Now that adds some that adds some zest and power to your prayers. Lord, I need strength to wait, not just for me, but because there are things I'd like to do for you. You know what that does? That puts you to the head of the line in the prayer line, if you want to put it that way. Hebrews 12.1 says that every believer in Christ has a race that is set before you. That there is a unique course laid out for every one of you. And God will give you strength to do that. One of the greatest enablements to have the power to run is to request God 
the request of God that He gives you all that you need so that you in turn can serve Him. That's, that's what you do. That's how you pray. You don't just pray, Lord, help me to wait. It's, Lord, help me to wait so that I can do something good and godly for you. You want power to run in your own life? When you pray, give the Lord reason to give you power to run. Give Him, give him a reason for His sake, not just yours. And in those areas that you wait on will seem less of a burden. And while you wait, we've started high. The power to soar, the power to run. We're kind of going backwards now. We're slowing down the power to walk. Verse 30 presents another picture of hitting the wall. Though youths grow weary and tired and choice young men stumble badly. Choice young men. This is... These are the the young men in their prime, men of military age, young men in peak condition. But even this has limits. God is saying here, you can only go so far in your own strength. And you might say, I can walk a mile. I can run a mile. I can sprint a mile. All right, try 900. How many of you will make it 900 miles? God wants to build in you an utter dependence on Him so that every single thing you do in this life has an asterisk next to it. And the asterisk is... If the Lord wills, and if He gives me the strength. Now, you may have noticed that we started by soaring. We landed on the ground to run. And now we've slowed down to walk. This is a very specific technique that God uses here. It's called an argument from the greater to the lesser. In other words, that if God is the everlasting God, the mighty God... If he's the creator of the ends of the earth, if he gives you the power to soar with wings like eagles, if he gives you the power to run and run and run and not be weary, how much more will he be able to simply give you the power to walk? What does it mean to walk? It's day by day, moment by moment, utterly dependent on the Lord. And let me do it backwards. To walk faithfully with the Lord is simply to get through today faithfully. Lord, I'm waiting on you. I can't do anything about all the things I'm waiting on, but I can be a a godly person today. That's what walking is. Put together a lot of days of walking in a row, and now you're running. Put together a lot of years of running, and now you're soaring. You know, one of the uh, advantages of getting older is that I can look back and see the countless times that God has been faithful. And the things that used to worry me don't worry me at all anymore. Because it, he, He's undefeated. In my life, He's a billion and O. Oh. He has always done what He said He's going to do. You put together a lot of years of running, now you're soaring. The lesson of the exiles in Babylon was not just, you'll get strength for the big walk home. It was, in the meantime... Live faithfully, just right now, right at this moment. I want to give you, a, I, I think, one of the mis, most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Maybe you've heard this verse, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. If you've heard that verse, the secret things belong to the Lord, That's always the verse that people go to when you say, well, I don't understand this theological concept. Well, the secret things belong to the Lord. I don't understand why I asked this girl out on a date and she said no 50 times. Well, the secret things belong to the Lord, but you're not very good looking, but that's your problem. (laughs) 
It's always this default. It's one of the most misused verses in the Bible. Let me tell you what it really means. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses is preaching to Israel before they enter Canaan, after they've escaped Egypt, and he's warning them. He's telling them that there's going to be a day when they're uprooted, they're cast out of their land. And he he plays out this dramatic scene, a, a fictitious dramatic scene where the nations of the earth are kind of all gathered around and they're they're asking, why did God do this? And here's the the scene. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to the land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. So now Moses has an answer for this question. The question is, what do I do if I'm one of those? What do I do if I'm one of the exiles? How do I understand this mystery? How do I grasp the scope of God? Moses gives the answer. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, I can't grasp the scope of God's scheme. How is it that in all the hundreds and hundreds of years, I got picked to be part of the generation that's exiled? In his transcendence, he's so far above me, I can't see the picture. Those are the secret things that belong to the Lord. You can't do anything about those. But what I can do Moses says, is to respond to the things that are revealed to us. What is that? That's the words of the law of God. In other words, Moses says, yeah, you're stuck in exile and it's not your place to know why, but it is your place to be a godly husband. It is your place to be a godly wife. It is your place to raise children who love me. It is your place to pay your bills on time. It is your place to be a good worker. It is your place to live for the Lord. If you read your New Testament, you've picked up a metaphor that transfers over to the New Testament heavily, and that is that of walking. The Apostle Paul uses it extensively. What does it mean to walk in power? In the New Testament, it means the same thing it does in the Old Testament, to be faithful. Now, I want to finish our time giving you a kind of a bullet point list, walking through this. So turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to rifle through this. It's just to kind of hit the highlights. Ephesians chapter 1. The book of Ephesians can be organized numbers of ways. And one of the ways to organize it is a particular set of principles all having to do with walking. Walking with the Lord. Now we start off with Ephesians 1.7. This is kind of our foundation. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, or transgressions rather, according to the riches of His grace. Our salvation is secured. Now Paul will give us gloriously the news of how exciting and thrilling and pain-free your lives will be. Right? Wrong. In the rest of the book, he gives the simple exhortation, the simple command to walk. And he does it seven times. And, and I've kind of made this into seven principles for walking day by day. We're going to rifle through these quickly. Principle number one, remember how you used to live. Remember how you used to live. We see remember how you used to live in Ephesians 2, 
1 and 2. Here's how you used to live. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked, there it is, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Who's the ruler of the power of the air? That's Satan. What does that tell us? Unbelievers follow their father, Satan. As an unbeliever, you may think, oh, I'm living a pretty good life. No, you're not. You're living exactly how Satan wants you to. And part of that is to fool yourself into thinking you're living a pretty good life. Here's the second principle. Fulfill your basic duties to the Lord. This is how to walk. Fulfill your basic duties to the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship. It's a Greek word that means masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would, here it is, walk in them. We would do them. What what is the antidote to grief and pain while you're waiting on the Lord? Waiting and waiting. It's to focus on the basics. To focus on being a good, submissive young person in your home. To be faithful in whatever duties you have. To do everything you do with excellence. To fulfill your basic duties. That brings peace. It brings uh, joy in the midst of waiting. There's a third principle. Cultivate Christ-like character. Cultivate Christ-like character. We'll skip over to chapter 4, verse 1. Cultivate Christ-like character, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy. There's walk again of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All humility... You know what people your age struggle with a lot? Humility, right? Is anybody here 18 years old exactly by any chance? A couple, okay, yeah, I will pick on Matt then. <laughs> yeah, when I was 18, uh, I remember I read a whole book on Jehovah's Witnesses. And I thought, I'm going to take these guys on. So like the young idiot I was, I called the local Kingdom Hall and I said, bring your best guys here. <laughs> I got taken apart by people who knew their heresy better than I knew my orthodoxy. Why was that? Because I was arrogant and I wasn't humble. And I thought, oh, I read this whole book last night. I can take on uh, these guys. And three guys show up in suits to my house. And I was like, oh, no, this is not going to go well. And it didn't go well at all. Cultivate Christ-like character. Here's a fourth principle. Live a set-apart life. Live a set-apart life. Chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore this I say and testify in the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. What are you doing that unbelievers do? Ephesians 4 gives a list by which to test yourself. And listen, uh, my salvation testimony is complex, but it boiled down to me getting caught trying to live two lives. When I was in high school, I tried to live Monday through Saturday like all my friends. And on Sunday, man, you you could have thought I was going to be a preacher someday or something. (laughs) And I met a guy that I was going to go to college with. And we spent a couple days together. And I, I rolled the dice. And I showed him my Monday through Saturday self. And right before we were going to leave, he asked me a question. You know, what do you want to do with your life? And I told him some ideas. And I said, what do you want to do with your life? 
And after living like a pagan heathen in front of him for two days straight, he said, well, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm going overseas to share the good news of the gospel with people. What, do you, what did you say you're going to do with your life again? And I was crushed because my two worlds hit. They collided. And I, I believe that's probably the moment I came to faith in Christ because my false faith was exposed. So this is Huge that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Which life are you going to live? It's a simple choice. Here's a fifth principle. Live a life devoted to loving others. Live a life devoted to loving others. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. There's a simple question. Like Christ, is your life fragrant to those around you or are you most likely to cause a relational stink around you? Do you bring drama to people around you or do you bring peace? When you walk in the door, do most people go, oh, or do they go, hey, it's nice to see you. That all has to do with how you love. And I promise you, you will have the reputation you deserve every time. You live a life devoted to loving others. Or here's another way to put it. Are you a burden to others or do you lift others' burdens? Do you take burdens off of other people? Here's a sixth principle. Live with the purpose of pleasing the Lord. Live with the purpose of pleasing the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 10. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Did you know this is uh, the basic question that I ask everyone I do counseling with? They say, well, I, I really want to do this. I want, I want, I want. That's a four-letter word. W-A-N-T. Want. It's a simple question. What would please the Lord? You know, most people can figure out their own problems at that point. Oh, what would please the Lord is for me to stop being a jerk to my wife and start being a nicer guy. That's what would please the Lord. Are you toying with sin? Or are you exposing it in your own life? You live with the purpose of pleasing the Lord. And, and you know, not, not to terrify you, but I sort of want to terrify you. If you think you're hiding sin, you might be good at hiding it from people. You will never hide it from the Lord. And eventually he'll expose it. You know how the Bible says it'll be exposed? In front of everybody. So you may as well deal with it now. And here's the seventh principle. Use your time for the very best things. Use your time for the very best things. Ephesians 5.15, we stay with the walking metaphor. Ephesians 5.15, therefore look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. What does that mean? It means that life is short. Use your time well. I would narrow it down to use every hour well. I, young men that I disciple, I make a rule in their life and I tell them, you will not wake up on any day without already knowing what's going to happen that day. You should never wake up one day and go, oh, I wonder what I'm going to do today. Unless your goal for that day is to wake up and say, I wonder what I'm going to do today. That's fine. You made that plan. I know that, like I remember being like seven. I remember Christmas when I was seven years old and it felt like 2,000 years before Christmas the next year. I remember that because I was like, I broke all my toys by the end of January and then I had to wait 11 months. It just felt like forever. Can I tell you something? Older people will all tell you this. The longer you live, 
the faster it goes. The faster it goes. And it just keeps going. So use your time now for the very best things. Having the power to walk while you wait simply means being obedient to the Lord now while you wait. I had a couple I was counseling with and they came in with the same posture that most couples come into counseling like this. You know, pointing at each other, right? And I always uh, like to take the finger and say, yeah, let's point it back at you. And couples come in sometimes and they'll say, well, here's the list. I can't be happy until this person achieves other perfection. And, and until, oh, like you, I guess. Uh, <clears throat> you know what helps them more than anything is, so while you're waiting for the impossible to happen, how are you going to walk with the Lord? I've literally seen people just kind of go, oh, I don't have to change the other person. I don't have to change my circumstances. I don't have to change anything except how I wait. That's it. That's all it has to be. By the way, God will never make you wait for no reason. He never will. You know what God did through the Babylonian captivity in Israel? He eliminated idolatry. He gave rise to a system called the scribes that were able to make thousands of copies of the scriptures. It gave birth to the synagogue where people could worship all over Israel and it unified the nation that used to be split. So he used it for very good things. You have two choices. You can learn to wait now and work on it. It's way easier now. When the hardest thing you're waiting on is, oh, I don't want to take geometry anymore. I'm waiting to get to the end. And you learn to do that well. When you're waiting on a doctor to email you whether you have a terminal illness or not. When you're waiting on a child that you don't know where they are in the world. When you're waiting on a family member who has a disease that may or may not kill them. When you're waiting on the really big things and you've learned to wait on the little things, then you've practiced and you're there and you can learn to wait. And you know what happens when you wait faithfully on the Lord? The whole point of this is joy. That you break through and you're above whatever your circumstances are. And I've seen it. I've seen it happen. I have seen people who struggle and struggle with a problem and they come back and see me and they just almost look like they're, they're walking on air. I said, what happened to you? Are are you taking drugs? Are you doing something? (laughs) And they say, no, I don't mind the, the pain anymore. I don't mind the struggle. I don't mind waiting. All I have to do is wait for the Lord to do his thing whenever he does it. And it's like they're, they're completely changed people. So I don't know if any of you are waiting on something significant right now, but I hope this tattoos itself into your brain because you will be. You will be waiting. And I hope you remember that the way to wait is simply to walk day by day, put together a bunch of those days you're running with power, put together a bunch of those, and you're soaring. And you're above it all. Remember that. Tattoo it in your brain. Remember, I'm much better looking than David, and that will help you (laughs) to recall this message. While you wait, the Lord's going to do something for you. He's going to make you more like Christ. And that's the whole point. Did you know that even Jesus waited? He had to wait to walk through the cross. He had to wait to suffer. He had to wait to be glorified. And he had to suffer in ways you can't even possibly comprehend. 
Hebrews chapter 4 says that we have a high priest, that is Christ, who can sympathize with our weakness. He knows everything you've gone through. He's waited and waited just like you have. So I hope you will take some steps forward in your ability to wait on the Lord because that's what creates Christian joy. That's what puts a smile on your face. Oh, you have a horrible disease and you don't have any good circumstances in your life. Why are you smiling? Because Christ is my King and He will make all things right. I hope that's what you will do. Thanks for taking the moment with me. Let me pray for you. Our Father, thank you for this text. It's so delightful. It's so tremendous. It's so helpful. I look at these precious young adult faces here, Lord, who are looking ahead to a life, I pray, of serving you. And Lord, I pray that they learn to wait because suffering is coming down the road. There is great pain in store for every human being because of sin in, in, in the world. But the power to soar and to run and to walk is readily available to those who know Christ, to those who are called according to His purpose. All these things will work together for good. Give these precious ones here, Lord, the power to wait on You, all so that Christ may be glorified. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.